You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff, but I'm joined by national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Here at NSLT, we've created a safe space for national security buffs and nerds. So welcome to the club. Welcome to our series on the rise of China and how that will affect national security for the United States. We will also talk about how China's efforts to collect data on persons globally has shifted the law. First, we need to get some context, and to do that, we need background. What is China's Belt and Road Initiative? Is it a major offensive operation aimed at giving China global dominance, or just the natural consequences of a rapidly developing nation highly dependent on trade? Our guest today is the Senior Fellow and Simon Chair in Political Economy and the director of Reconnecting Asia Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, Jonathan Hellman, and thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, Jonathan, what exactly are the contours of China's Belt and Road Initiative? Is it simply an effort to reestablish the old Silk Road? So the Belt and Road is uh, difficult to define. It's, it's sort of part science, part art, mostly art. Um, it was announced in 2013, and when it was announced, it had two main components. Um, there was an overland belt, confusingly, and a maritime road. Um, and this is Xi Jinping's <laughs> signature foreign policy vision. Um, it's a little bit confusing, though, because projects before 2013 are often counted as Belt and Road projects. Um, and even though infrastructure is probably the most recognizable dimension of the Belt and Road, it also includes trade agreements, it includes people-to-people ties, um, it includes policy coordination across a whole host of areas, um, and since being announced, it's expanded to the Arctic, it's expanded to cyberspace, and it's even expanded to outer space. As of um, last month, about 125 countries had signed Belt and Road cooperation documents, um, and so this, this thing has just been growing and growing since it was announced. And so cooperation agreements, what sort of cooperation is anticipated by these agreements? And I do want to pivot after you answer that back to the Arctic. So I think um, a lot of these MOUs, you know, almost none of them, none of them that I've seen at least are actually legally binding. They they make sort of, they have a lot of aspirational um, statements about improving many of those areas I mentioned, you know, so improving trade between those countries, improving transportation, improving people-to-people ties. But at the bottom of each document, and you know, you can see Italy's recent Belt and Road MOU, which was criticized by the U.S. Italy was criticized for joining the Belt and Road. But at the bottom of the MOU, it does say this is not binding, um, and so it is. Uh, it's not an empty document. It's important symbolically, but legally, you know this better than I do. Legally, I wouldn't put much stock in it. Okay. Um- and so let's pivot back for a second. I mean, it, we, we've done uh, at least one and maybe two podcasts on sort of the Arctic, featuring, of course, China's recent purchase of multiple, what are they called, icebreakers and the mm-hmm. like, um, and whether or not they're up there to get their hands on the oil that is under the, the poles, or whether they're up there because that's going to be a convenient trade route as the uh, planet warms. Um, what aspect of the Belt and Road Initiative focuses on the Arctic? 
So it's both of those dimensions, theoretically. It's both the energy extraction as well as the transit, um, because Belt and Road is focused on developing transit corridors. Um, I think, though, in the short term, the real Arctic play is about extraction. It's about getting things out of the Arctic rather than getting things through the Arctic, although that could change in several decades. Um, the, the transportation experts I talk to say that they're not expecting a breakthrough anytime soon. And what are the space aspects of those BRI agreements? So I think one of the main aspects, um, and again, this is something that expands you know, weekly, if not daily, but one of the um, main aspects of the outer space component is a um, satellite system, the Baidu system that China has been trying to get Belt and Road participating countries to sign up to. And so this is their alternative to GPS. Wow. So the Russians have one. Now, and of course, we have one. And now the Chinese are going to have one. Exactly. Fascinating. All right. Well, it may surprise some people to know that China actually has a constitution. Given the amount of data they're collecting on individuals right now, that's been widely reported in the media. But can you explain how the Chinese altered their constitution in light of the BRI and what that might mean? So this was an important development in 2017. Um, this was around the 19th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. And so the, com- the Chinese Communist Party has its own constitution. And the party constitution basically sets rules and principles for how members um, are supposed to act and what they're supposed to do. I mean, it lays, all, it lays out sort of their version of history, mentioning great leaders of the past um, and now mentioning great leaders of the present. So Xi Jinping was given a very sort of significant shout out in the Communist Party constitution, as well as his signature vision, Belt and Road, has now been incorporated in, in the Communist Party constitution. So I think that signals two things. One is it's again a, it's a affirmation of his power and sort of um, that this is his vision, but it also signals that Belt and Road or dimensions of it could continue even after he leaves office. Well, I wonder if he's anticipating some health concerns. But here's my question: Did they give him a hotel, a couple of blocks from his office? I'm just wondering. So you said that this initiative first began in 2013. Why is there so much more attention on BRI now if it's been an ongoing issue in China for so many years? So I think a few reasons. Um, I think Belt and Road has been making um, both good headlines and bad headlines. And so I think um, in the bad side, you hear about places like Sri Lanka, which have taken on lots of loans from China. and there's a port in Sri Lanka that was taken over by a Chinese state-owned enterprise because Sri Lanka could not pay back the loans. So you have instances like that that have sort of got people's eyes open, and they're wondering, you know, kind of provocatively, is this a new form of colonialism? Um, we've got a great power that's using infrastructure to advance its political influence around the world. Um, and then it's sort of on the good or, you know, let's say neutral headlines category, um, this is something that's just massive, and I think there's a somewhat um, compelling contrast between what China is doing beyond its borders and the sort of lack of action and coordination from, um, let's call them the sort of traditional defenders of globalization. So at a time when the United States is a little bit more insular, at a time when the European Union is a little bit dysfunctional, China is trotting out this hugely ambitious vision for dealing with the world. Um, and, and, you know, is part of the calculus there that they'll just fill that vacuum, perhaps created by the United States disengaging? 
I think it's an op- there, the opportunity is there. If you go to a Belt and Road conference within China or outside of China, um, it's kind of alarming that this, there's this conversation happening about globalization and a new kind of globalization, and there aren't there aren't a lot of American voices there shaping that that conversation. And the Belt and Road, for all of its faults, and we could talk about those, it does put forward a very attractive vision for developing countries who have great needs for infrastructure. And so it does speak to their aspirations. Well, certainly you see that. And and when I've traveled in Africa, it's very clear that they are literally building roads across the continent um, where they've never had them before and frankly need them for all sorts of things. Interesting court case in Africa, too, with the Dubai Port World. There's a port in Djibouti that was run by Dubai Port World, uh, nationalized by the Djiboutian government, which owes most of its debt to China now. Speculation that China might run the port, but Dubai Port World has taken the government of Djibouti to court um, in London. Uh, it's taking um, China Merchants, huge shipping company, to court in Hong Kong now. There's a legal dimension well, there. I, but, you know, but I think one of the concerns with respect to the Sri Lanka issue is that they hold so much of our debt here. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've reached a situation where we were, I guess, in the 80s where we're, you know, are we the largest debtor nation now at this point? And much of it is held by the Chinese, and they can't, I mean, the question is, could they call it in at some point? And if so, what would that look like for them? You know, that's one of the big conversations, as you probably Mm -hmm. are aware. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I haven't heard of any sort of credible um, scenario in which they would go ahead and do that, because I think they would be basically... Um, shooting themselves at the same yeah. time. Um, it also, I think it kind of calls to mind this um, saying by, I think, um, John Paul Getty about, you know, if you um, borrow $100, then that's what you owe your banker. But if you borrow $100 million, you've basically got your banker in your pocket now because you've you've become such a, you know... I think, is the, is the expression that if you owe $100... To the bank, that's your problem. Yes. If yeah. you owe a hundred million dollars to the bank, that's the bank's problem. Um, but I th- think there are people in the country who actually have some concern that they would do this. And then there is the sort of the counterpoint of the big thinkers on the topic who say we have mutually assured destruction, um, much as we sort of did with the Russians during the Cold War when you were talking about more kinetic potential kinetic instances of, of destruction. So I, I do think it's an interesting topic. I can't imagine a circumstance under which they would call in that debt. No, it, it's difficult to imagine, too, as China's growth is pulling back a little bit. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the leadership there is trying to do everything that they can. And they're worried about this trade war right now. Right. Taking some action like that, <clears throat> I think it could, um, the domestic economic impact in China could call into question their legitimacy. And so I think that would be a very risky move. Sure. So we talk about um, these economic ways that the U.S. and China are intertwined, but BRI seems to be about infrastructure projects primarily in other countries. So what are the national security concerns that the U.S. would have about a robust execution of BRI around the world? So we've, we've actually, CSIS has just released a report. Um, Which we're going to hyperlink <laughs> to our list for our listeners' benefit. A few weeks ago, and it's the result of a task force that was co-chaired by Charlene Barshevsky, former U.S. Trade Representative, 
and Steve Hadley, former U.S. National Security Advisor. And part of that report basically lays out the U.S. interests at stake in global infrastructure broadly, but the Belt and Road touches many of these. Um, and so, you know, in brief, a few of those categories, they run the gamut from commercial interests. So the world has a huge need for infrastructure. Um, and that need, I think, should create opportunities for U.S. Uh, contractors, energy producers, and suppliers of technology, service providers, lawyers, etc. Um, and then there's also a development um, set of interests too, where um, you know the U.S. has a long-standing interest, um, a commitment to development that's both on humanitarian grounds as well as what you might call enlightened self-interest. Um, there's a there's a set of interests that relates to standards and rules, and so you know the countries that are leading today's global infrastructure build-out are going to have, um, you know, an ability to shape tomorrow's technical standards and everything from 5G um, to, um, uh, you know, the Internet of Things. And um, so I think that's an important area to remain engaged in. And then finally, you have the sort of more hard security set of interests. Um, almost all infrastructure is dual use, and so it could be used for commercial purposes or military purposes. Um, and in that category, you have things like maintaining the integrity of ports, pipelines, fiber optic cables, other critical infrastructure um, that's important not only for U.S. domestic security, but also for the U.S.'s ability to project power beyond its borders. Right, which um, I think most Americans would would agree that we have established a lot of global norms, and um, that's a position that we want to be in uh, for any number of reasons. But if we cede that uh, to another power that's very different from our own, because we've just disengaged, that would have inevitable consequences for our national security and any diplomacy. Um, so the current administration has taken a very different approach to China in terms of its national security responses. But what do you think, what aspect of BRI in particular do you think might have informed any of these policy shifts? So I think there are a few developments um, that are, are related to this broader shift. I mean, I think there has been a broader shift uh, about um, how foreign policy and national security experts think about China. And I think that that would have been reflected in um, either a Republican or a Democrat administration. With the current shift we're seeing and sort of some of the responses to Belt and Road in particular, um, I think some of that's related to China's just expansion, and so China is in more places doing more things. We're reacting to that. Um, it's been assertive and you know aggressive in some instances and um, laying claim to disputed territory um, and stealing technology. And I think those actions have um, generated a, a harder response. And I you know I also think uh, there's probably some dimension of this. That is um, the fact that the U.S., I think, the last administration didn't talk about Belt and Road because we had this all sort of alternative economic vision, mainly with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that was a big priority, and we're pushing that. Um, now there's the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, but it doesn't have quite as much substance beneath it. And so I think there's been probably a little bit more of a... Um, uh, reactive stance that's been taken rather than sort of a proactive one in offering alternatives. But would you also agree, just to follow up on that, that we've shifted to really a digital economy and that most of that transit chi chi transits Chinese-made digital products, um, such as 
Huawei technology, computer processing materials and um, parts, and that those things are highly dependent. We are highly dependent on cheap goods and a lot of our manufacturing in that area, which we might bolster against um, sort of threats. We've ceded that to China just because we have an appetite for uh, cheap goods, one, and two, companies have an obligation to their shareholders to keep certain costs down and don't necessarily think about the long-term secondary and tertiary consequences of building everything on top of um, Chinese technology that is potentially vulnerable. Um, and just that fact alone, wouldn't that be something that was just just sort of coincided with a new administration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the, techno- the technology dimension of this is incredibly important. <clears throat> and I think China's digital Silk Road, if, if you want to call it that, the sort of basically the high-tech digital infrastructure component of it is, um, I think, one of the areas in which U.S. interests are most at stake, um, not only because that's an area where U.S. technology companies should be very competitive, but because we're talking about you know, the future of many industries there. So let, let, me, um, let me draw you out for just a second, because um, we were talking offline before we got started about the fact that, you know, 35 years ago, a long time ago, people were afraid of Japan. Japan appeared to be a rising power. Uh, it was reaching into many, many countries across the globe, perhaps not as uh, completely as China is doing at this time. But there was a book at the time which was called The Coming War with Japan. You see some parallels. What do you think are the parallels to what we're looking at right now? So, yeah, I do, I do think there are several parallels, especially in Southeast Asia, which is where Japan was very involved pursuing huge infrastructure projects in the 80s, using loans that were criticized for having too high interest rates, tying those loans to using Japanese firms. These are both things that China is criticized for today. Japan also had a series of um, bad headlines. When um, the president of the Philippines fled office, there were documents that were discovered um, implicating, I think, about half a dozen or maybe even a dozen Japanese com- companies and paying, paying off um, politicians for projects. And so corruption is something that China is struggling with a lot right now because of its lack of transparency in Belt and Road projects. Japan struggled with that as well. But I think one of the big differences is that all of those mistakes that Japan made, the bad, the negative experiences it had, those generated um, uh, reflection and actually some public pressure within Japan for them to change their policies. Um, and so there was both that um, public reflection and pressure, and there was also pressure from the United States to ask Japan to change. Um, and when I look at China, I don't see either of those pressures being um, as acute for the leadership in China. And so I think that they might be more resistant to change going forward, unfortunately. So we could try that, but its efficacy is questionable at the outset, probably. Worth trying, though. Worth trying. All right. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We're really glad that you came in, and uh, we'll look forward to looking at that report um, from CSIS. We'll make it available to our listeners, as well as Jonathan's bio online. Thanks for having me. We're glad you came. Mm -hmm. And thanks for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. 
You can find more links to articles on today's topics on our website, as well as books that can help you grow your understanding of this important and fast-moving area of law. Our website is AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, and you can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on our Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.